Hi, everyone, and welcome to SACS's To Practice, a practitioner skill building process for the field from two folks who don't know it all, but have and will continue to think a lot about it. Hi, everyone. My name is Maserat. I am an associate vice president here at James Madison University. And I'm Kate Radford. I serve as the director for leadership, education and development in the Center for Student Leadership and Engagement at Clemson University. So just to catch up a bit in case you've missed our earlier seasons or episodes of this season, um, Miles and I used to be colleagues um, here at Clemson and worked in an office that at the time was about half graduate students. And through the years, we thought a lot about some of the practical skills that we felt like we all need, but that our grad students um, needed as they prepared to head out into the workforce. Um, and we felt like we bore a great deal of responsibility for developing those practical skills. So we spent a lot of time thinking through that, talking through those skills that we think are necessary to thrive in student affairs. And this podcast is really born of those realizations, uh, kind of the idea of giving us time to continue to hone our skills as practitioners and um, probably most importantly to me, to continue to sit down and talk to my friend Miles. So we're doing that through a grouping of seasons, each based on a specific skill. You're catching us here in hiring. Well, before we get to talking about today's episode of hiring, I do have a doozy of a pop culture true or false for Kate, which is so niche that frankly, anybody who doesn't have my odd mind, I, you know, this, this it's really not fair, but it is fun. So Kate, are you ready um, to try to guess which celebrities um, attended uh, which liberal arts colleges in Ohio? Oh my God. I love this. Yes. This, okay, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. This is going to be so fun. Also, yeah. to be fair, I mean, if you've listened to the first couple episodes of this season, you know that I'm also now throwing a question back at Miles during this season. And it's also very niche. So I've earned this, you know, like it, this is just like fairness. Well, great, great. Okay, well, let's let's get started. Um, did, uh, is Paul Newman... Uh, an alum of Kenyon College. Do you, okay, first off, do you know who Paul Newman is? He's a salad dressing guy. <laughs> yeah, that that is that is a thing. Uh -huh. He's on some salad dressing bottles. I know that. Mm -hmm. Um, I assume he's also an actor at some point in his life. Uh, I don't know. I don't know anything he's in. Was he in like westerns? I've kind of pictured him as being in like western movies. Is that true? I think you're so he I, he was of the era of like okay. Western movies. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I know who he is. Uh -huh. Um, I, I know who he is. Was <laughs> he in like Westerns? I know who he is. That's what just happened. Listen, I've pictured I've seen him because he's on some salad dressing bottles. Not that I personally have, but I'm sure that my parents at some point had them. Um, I think, yes, he did. True. You're correct. One of one, you know, one of one. Great start. I just thought we'd start with a, you know, on a positive note. So I just got lucky, but okay. Yeah. Yeah. This, um, this actually uh, came to mind because I read an article recently about uh, Kenyon College and its relationship to the local Gambier and its broader um, county community and reference that Paul Newman had, had graduated from there. So, hmm. yeah. All right. Um, how about Tom Hanks and Ohio Wesleyan? Did Tom Hanks, do you know who Tom Hanks is? Okay, that's just kind of rude. Yes, I know who Tom Hanks is. This is what I'm just confirming. I think at, for a time, Paul Newman was as famous as Tom Hanks. So. That's fair, but a different era. Okay, anyway. 
It is fair. I, you should ask me every time because most people I don't know. So, but yes, I do know who Tom Hanks is. Um, and gosh, I don't know. To be honest, this is like making me sort of, I'm I'm realizing maybe some stereotypes I have about Ohio in this moment because I'm like trying to think about whether I think these people could have been there or not. Um, oof. I'm going to say no. Wow. No. You were really doing well, Kate. Like so much better. That's two of two. You're doing great. Um, yeah. So Tom Hanks grew up in, uh, in California. That's what I was picturing in my head. I was like, he feels more like California to me than Ohio. And those just, I couldn't picture him then moving to Ohio for college. Yeah. So he started off at a community college called Shabbat College and then transferred to and completed his degree at uh, Cal State Sacramento, uh, which I think is colloquially known as Sacramento State. I'm double checking that now. Um, okay. Yeah, Sacramento State. Yep. So that's where so that's where Tom Hanks went. Yeah. Love that. Okay, great. Two for yeah. two. Let's keep it going. Sacramento State's an HSI. Um, all right. Uh, how about Dave Chappelle and Antioch? college did dave Chappelle go to antioch college first off do you know who dave Chappelle is i do know who dave Chappelle is yeah hmm i'm gonna say false on this one as well okay you're doing so this is amazing three of three wow oh wow um yeah so that one is very tricky not Ooh. that you know much about Antioch College, I would guess, because it's very, very small. Okay, so I do know, I think Antioch College, at one point in time, they had a really prominently, at least advertised, I don't know, prominent in terms of like, I don't know much about it. This is not me like um, criticizing it. But they had a really prominent um, PhD in leadership program that I looked at at one point, I think. Hmm. Maybe that's not the right place. I think you're thinking of Antioch University. Mm. That's possible. Yeah. Indiana College is very small, and I don't know that they uh, give out any doctoral degrees. Doctoral degrees. Mm, that would make sense. Okay. Yeah. Then, no, I don't even. So I just got, yeah, no idea. Yeah. So Indiana College um, uh, is, yeah. So it has, it's like a very, uh, for those of you who are familiar with Warren Wilson in, uh, in North Carolina, Antioch is like oh, very yeah. comparable. Um, the reason why it's tricky is because Dave Chappelle does, in fact, live in the tiny town that Antioch College is in, which is, you know, pretty, you know, pretty uh, unexpected for a celebrity of his size to live in a very, very small town called Yellow Springs, yeah. Ohio. Um, but I think he sort of uh, grew up there, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, but yeah, uh Yellow Springs, where Antioch is located, has 3,600 people that live in it. And the enrollment at Antioch College is 116 people. Uh, oh. Yeah, yeah. So super, super small. But yeah, Dave, Dave Chappelle does, in fact, um, live there. I actually heard his fairly controversial uh, uh, SNL monologue recently uh in which he talked about living in ohio so briefly amongst other things oh yeah so wow wow, wow. 
Yeah. So I thought maybe I would trick you with that. Okay. Last one. Are you ready? This Wait, can my... I ask a follow-up question about Antioch College? Because I'm just super interested in it. Yeah. Is it also, you compared it to Warren Wilson, is it also one of the like work co- in the work college consortium? Is it like one of those schools? Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't know. Uh, that's mm. that's a good question. Um, Antioch, I'm fascinated by that. If you don't know about the work colleges consortium listeners, you should look that up. It's like very fascinating to me. I think there's nine colleges that are in it. Warren Wilson is one. Um, very cool. Like, I don't know. Interesting model. Students are required to work on campus. They basically like, from what I understand, like run their colleges in a lot of ways. So like thinking about um, like some of our, even like facilities type like work that might be done on a college campus, students do that. And then there's also some like obviously integrating work into their learning and engagement. But anyway, really fascinating. Uh, I just looked and it is not a work college. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah, not a work college. And uh, did not, uh, Dave Chappelle did not graduate from there. Got it. Yeah. Uh, I know a lot more about Antioch College than I did three minutes ago. So thank you. It was started by the like very, very uh, historically famous and influential educational reformer, Horace Mann, um, who was like a very prominent abolitionist, but then also um, mm-hmm. like a real advocate for uh, universal public education. So. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, he established a system in Massachusetts that then was modeled in most places. So, very cool. Anyway, that's Antioch. Um, well, okay, last one. Did Jennifer Gardner go to Denison? Yes, true. Kate, this is your first four or four, and it was so niche. I can't believe this. Yes, yeah, she did. You've told me that. You you set yourself up for failure on that one. You, I think it was you that told me about Jennifer Gardner going there. Mm. Well, you know, you can't can't be held to I know your, your whole history of telling people about Jennifer Gardner's college attendance. I know it's hard. It's hard when you spend so much of your life talking about Jennifer Gardner and her and her college attendance. and her college experiences. Yeah, primarily. I I think we talked about it at some point because for during my personal college search, Denison was like really high on the list. Like it was a a real top contender for where I would like where I wanted to go. And then at some point it, it sort of fell off the, the, the final list, but um, I had like a, I don't, and I don't really know why I think it was power of marketing materials. I think it was just some of the stuff I had never visited. I just like had read about it and looked online and was really excited about Denison and yeah. Hmm. Anyway, not, well, not all that different from the institution I did attend Elon university. So, you know, small private liberal arts, not surprising. Um, an update, it's Denison University. I wanted to double check that. I was a little, mm. little, little nervous about that. Yeah. So, yeah. Somehow we had a conversation about Ohio LaVar's colleges and haven't even talked about everyone. So how about that? How about that? How about that? Well, I love it. Are you, um, are you prepared for, um, my question for you, Miles? My, is this a real song title question? Um, I am ready for that. I just wanted to provide one more update about Denison as I've been looking it up. Uh, There's one other very prominent celebrity that graduated from there. Would you like to know who it is? Um, Yes. Will I know who they are? Probably not. Go ahead. I think you will. Although I never know for sure. Steve Carell also graduated. Oh, I do know Steve Carell. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. Okay. That was a fun one. 
I like the overlap here with higher ed too. I mean, good, good stuff. Good stuff. So, okay. So the, the song title I have for you, Miles, um, the song theoretically is called, or really, I don't know. That's for you to figure out. Truth of my youth. That's a good one. Um, truth of my youth. Well, there's a good rhyme there. Um, mm -hmm. There is. I like the idea that you're going to start making these up out of whole cloth at some point. Like there's just no kernel of truth to it. It's just, um, it's just like, this sounds like this would be a funny song name for this era of music. Um, so I don't know. I think it's true. I really have no basis for this other than trying to analyze past behavior and the information itself. Let's say it's true. It is true. Would you like to know who um, sings Truth of My Youth? Sure. I need that for my Spotify search. So The band is Newfound Glory. Mm. It is important that you know that Newfound Glory was a part of my AIM screen name. So, you know, made it clear that I liked a lot of these bands, but I liked Newfound Glory enough that they were part of my AOL screen name. So really high up there. Big fans. I think Newfound Glory was like the first real concert I went to that wasn't like a concert with my parents, which, you know, I hadn't seen like Garth Brooks with my dad at some point, but Newfound Glory was like real thing. Went to the 930 club in DC. It was like a whole, it was a big deal for me. So very near and dear to my heart, Newfound Glory. How, I'm sure you've already looked. So how many monthly listeners do they have? 1.7 million. I think this is your highest one. I actually like recognize this band name. So yeah. they're a good one. Truth of my youth. All right. Truth of my well, youth. I think that's the first time I've gotten this right. So feeling, congratulations. congratulations you, to you. You did well today, Kate. Yes. Nice work. Nice work. Yeah. All right. Well, um, that was fun. You ready to dig into our topic for today? Yes. Take me there. All right. So just as a reminder to folks, we're talking about, um, you know, maybe what we have dubbed as one of the most vexing student affairs issues right now, uh, or topics right now, so hiring. Um, and today, we're going to talk about the interview process. So last week, we talked about the search committee and selection and um, some of those details. And this week, we're jumping into where are we with... Um, when we get to the interview process and how do we do that in, as we've said for this entire season, a pro candidate way. So um, Miles, let's start here. How do you uh, prepare the candidate and the committee for a beneficial first round interview? Well, I think, so we're talking about first round here. I think most people are doing those over Zoom these days. Um, um, I think that what I would say is that we have, built most of these processes on the idea of spontaneity. We have built them on the idea that we are going to provide a question and this person needs to have a breadth and depth of experience that they can then adequately respond to that question. And what I would say is that um, spontaneity may be the foundation for how we built these processes, but it is not how most people's jobs work. 
um, we are, I think, very rarely evaluated on how we're responding in real time to questions that we're getting. And I think that that is, <clears throat> depending on the level, is even less likely for folks, particularly in student-facing type jobs. Um, and so um, what I would say is that if you want a really beneficial, robust first round interview that is more aligned with, we say this is what we care about, and we want to set this person up to have this information and to best represent how they're going to be qualified for meeting these things, then provide a full script ahead of time. Give folks all the questions, give them your expectations of coming back ahead of time. If you're going to set aside 20 minutes of the interview, which I would recommend, set aside a lot of time for questions to come back from the candidate to you. Um, let them know that, you know, like if you're going to say we're going to have X amount of time for questions, we want you to have questions prepared for us. So, you know, we can think through that. Um, give them that information. And then that's going to be the that's frankly going to be the best evaluation of the criteria that you've established. It doesn't matter, particularly for a first round interview. I, like, goodness, it does not matter if somebody can like, you know, deflect your your you know, jabs on the fly. Um, but the questions coming back, I think, helps everybody. I think that that's part of engaging the committee with the process, because the committee, frankly, with the repetition of this, is learning more from the questions that they're getting back. And they also prefer them. There is an engagement to that with the committee. Um, uh, the other thing that I would say in terms of the committee specifically is map your questions directly back to your scoring process. So I've asked question A, you know, or question one, that's going to go to criteria one in the process. So based on the response that we get here, that's how we're going to evaluate, whether it's numerical, which we've talked about, or whether it's, you know, some sort of other way of doing that, it's going to map directly back. So your committee knows this question that I'm getting the answer to is going to help me determine this thing. And frankly, you can provide the rubric that you're using to the candidates ahead of time too. Let them know directly this is what we're looking for, and this is how we're going to be. This is how we're going to be making this decision. Um, but you can also say like we're giving you all this information, but we really, you know, because we want you to be successful, we want you to feel comfortable. Um, and the other thing that I would say in terms of engagement for the committee is give those folks breaks. There's a temptation because scheduling is so complicated. If you can get your scheduling done way in advance, then you should be able to give breaks for people to not be on Zoom for a little while and to get their forms in and to, you know, just reset. And I think that gives you a better shot of those folks being engaged on a regular basis. So, mm -hmm. yeah, those are the things those are the things that I thought about. I love the like very open process that you've just described of um you know, like laying it all out there for candidates. I think you're right. There is this like desire or we've just, I think we've just been socialized to think like an interview is supposed to be how quickly can people think on their feet and going to give them these questions and see, you know, if they can quickly come up with it. And I think that one, it does a disservice to um, certain types of like processors, certain like uh, learning styles, if you will. I don't know if it's learning styles, but sort of just the way that people operate in spaces like it doesn't that doesn't benefit people all the same way um and you're right like the 
what we're trying to find out is if they are able to do the job. And unless the job is about like talking to reporters or something at a moment where they've got to have a quick response to something and be able to think on the fly, I mean, that you're not assessing anything that we really need to know by doing that. So I think the other thing in the way that you describe that, Miles, is that you're you're like really letting your values shine through like who you are as a supervisor or even as a department, right? Like I think about times where I have sent candidates questions prior to an interview and said, like, we wanted you to have these for a couple of reasons. Like one, sometimes on Zoom, like it's difficult to hear, or it is like, you might need a second to like read as you are hearing the question. Um, And that's like an accessibility thing, right? So like you're from the front end being very clear about your, um, that you like walk the walk and talk the talk of being, you know, accessible and create an accessible process. Um, And I think it makes you just feel so much more approachable and feels so much less like this. um, There's this wall up between you and the candidate. It's um, you like immediately sort of tear down that wall by, by being really transparent about the process. And I just think the way you've described it, you just, you don't, you don't really lose anything by doing that. I can't think of anything that you, that you lose again, unless something about what you're trying to evaluate is how quickly someone can come up with an answer on the spot. And probably not going to get their best stuff, which is also not going to help you to know what they're capable of. So that's a good point. Yeah. Um, anything Anything else that you would sort of add or think through about first round interview and, and creating a beneficial process? I think just resisting the urge to ask everything. <laughs> I think um, I have been a part of, you know, first round interview processes where we just have way too many questions. And either the questions like started to lose the meaning or people were getting worn out or like, to be very frank, the search committee mm-hmm. after like listening and listening and listening to many of these in a row, just sort of like started to lose interest in some of the questions. So um, I think, you know, remind yourself in the moment that you have, you have other layers of this process where you can ask things. I think the first round interview, particularly in the way that we've been talking about sort of the hiring uh, landscape right now is that like that first round interview is a way for you, um, to maybe do some of the vetting that you would have done in earlier processes in the past, right? Like it's a way, and I don't, not necessarily vetting, but it's a way for you to, um, to get more information. So what do you really truly need to know more about? Um, what are maybe some of, you know, we talked about the like red light, yellow light, green light last week, like what made some folks a yellow light? Like, what did we want to know more about? What were some of our like unknowns that we just like could not gather? And how can we make sure the questions are addressing those things and giving us more information versus just being this like long list that we all, I think sometimes we'll throw out in a first round interview. Yeah, I think that, I think that's great. Like, how are you thinking about these things, you know, sequentially, you know, there's this you know, temptation. I gotta, you know, I've gotta know everything. And I think that that gets to that sort of thoroughness and like exhaustion that can run into, that can run into these, to this stuff. Um, all right. So Kate, let's, let's transition to the on-campus. So we talk a lot about wanting the on-campus experience. And I think it's like a cliche that, you know, supervisors in particular, like roll into these meetings and like, Hey, this is just a conversation. It's like, well, <laughs> conversations don't work like this for me. So, um, you know, yeah. 
power is not built into this. Most of my conversations don't involve, involve formal business attire. Um, they, you know, <laughs> there's not, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars of future earnings on the line. Right. Um, you know, my professional future is not normally attached to a quote unquote conversation. Um, so long story short, we talk about that a lot and wanting it to be the, like an exchange of information and not like grilling someone, but mm -hmm. Obviously, based on what I just said, I don't think that we typically achieve that. And so how can we, you know, how can we be realistic, but also have a productive exchange of information in the conversation? Like there's going to be power built into this. It's going to be, you know, there's going to be some weirdness to it probably. Um, but how can we make this like a productive exchange as opposed to this like grilling kind of idea, which I think most people want to avoid, but sure. avoiding that in real time is more challenging than we think, I think sometimes. So. Absolutely. I mean, let's just start with, yeah, there's power there and you're, they, they, you cannot get rid of that. I mean, I just, I, I think um, stop spending time trying to pretend it's not there and maybe acknowledge that it is there and then actively work against it. I think some of the ways um, that you can actively work against it, particularly as a hiring manager is um, to think about the way that you structure the day, right? So how can you like ease in a little bit to the day, right? Like the first interview of the day probably does not need to be with like a panel of 10 people and, you know, it just sets the tone. Um, so thinking about how can you, um, again, power is not going to be gone and you can say it's gone, but we, everyone knows it is not, but how can you try to create some more informal space maybe at the beginning of the day? So, um, something I have found that I, I think is helpful uh, in the last couple of processes that I have done is I have taken the candidate to breakfast by myself on the first, the uh, sort of as the first interview, um, breakfast, coffee, whatever. Um, and I have also built myself a formal interview time in later in the day. So a candidate can see like there is going to be time where there is going to be more of a like formal structure here and I'm going to ask questions, but I'm sort of, um, I think I try really to be clear to say this really is about me answering any questions you have about the day make sure that you feel good about sort of where you're headed. Um, and I say, you know, we're going to have time later for me to ask more like direct questions. This is uh, this is time for you to like get comfortable as much as possible before you head into other interviews for the day. Um, I think you can also think about how you do that with other folks throughout the day, right? So building in some informal time if possible um, between those interview slots, um, thinking about, you know, who is things that just feel like logistics, thinking about them more intentionally, right? So like who's driving the candidate from the airport? Who is picking them up at the hotel? Who is ushering them from space to space? Who are they having a meal with, right? Like all of those things set uh, the tone for the day. And so making sure that you're thinking strategically about who will do that well, right? Like we talked last time about who to put on your committee, who's good at recruiting, right? Who's also good at maybe making people feel more comfortable and, um, you know, thinking about the power dynamics that might be in play uh, with certain people. So some of those roles, I think of like ushering people from space to space and having lunch and driving the candidate, like, can you make sure that those people are not folks with um, positional power over this, this role, right? So people get a chance to maybe relax a little bit or feel a little bit more relaxed and maybe ask some of their questions that they really need answers to. Um, 
I think also making sure that every interview slot that you have is actually necessary. <laughs> Maybe back to my comment in terms of the phone interview of not asking everything. Again, I think we've just been particularly in student affairs, um, like the all day interview is just such a normal thing, right? It's like, well, that's just what we do. Like it's all day and you come and you, you know, there's like this uh, script that we have across universities. Um, and I think that's in some ways, it's like pretty bizarre to people outside of student affairs. Like when I tell people that I'm bringing a candidate to campus and they're going to be there all day and we're flying them in the night before and they have seven interviews, they're like, what? Like for, you know, an entry level position, that's wild. And in some ways it is, I think, kind of wild. So I think really rethinking, um, is there a purpose to why you're doing that? Or are you just doing it because it's the way you've always done it? And it's the way that you think we're supposed to do it in student affairs, right? So make sure that every interview is actually necessary and has questions that are actually helpful to your selection process and to the candidate getting information and you getting information. Um, those are things that come to mind for me. How about you? I mean, I... I think you I think you touch on most of it. I think that that's the biggest thing for me is like what evaluative situations do you need and what can you do to actually make the day be something that's like a learning experience for the folks yeah. about, you know, like the kind of place that they, you know, the kind of community on campus and off that they would get to know about. Um yeah, I I I think you I think you covered it really well. I just don't put them in a room if you don't actually need them to be evaluated by those people, which goes back to some of what we were talking about recently. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So Maz, let's think about as people, uh, you know, we've just talked about some of the interview like process and what that might look like on an on-campus interview. How do you, um, beyond the formal interview spaces, right. And we're going to try to limit those maybe based on our previous conversation and we're going to think strategically about those and what makes sense and what's necessary. Um, I think a lot of what the experience is about is people understanding, right? The reason we do an on-campus interview, the reason it's important that people come there is to understand and highlight what our campus looks like and our community might look like. Um, you know, I think we adapted uh, during COVID well to, to not having to bring people to campus, which is probably a conversation for another day about like the necessity of some of that. But aside from that, um, when you do get the opportunity to bring people to campus, um, or maybe even earlier in the process, maybe before they're on campus, how do you highlight your campus and your community during an on-campus interview? Yeah. So my colleagues here, and this is something that I very much, I, I can take literally zero credit for, but my Colleagues here at JMU um, have created this uh, this committee uh, within student affairs called SA Pros, and um, structurally built in, we have a commitment for every position that folks get a non-evaluative time with somebody um, who is on SA Pros to sit down and uh, to sit down and to just talk with somebody. Literally, it's, you know, it's like a black box, you know, you like go into that conversation and the person from SA Pros cannot say anything to anybody else about what the conversation was like. It is just for those folks to have a conversation about what it's like to live here and to work here. And, you know, like, and, and it was, it was a really beneficial space for me in terms of thinking about, um, thinking about moving here. And I think it, you know, I think it's, true for a lot of folks that that's really beneficial. And so how can you build in, that's like helping folks actually get to know what, you know, what it's, what it's like to live there. Um, 
you know, other small things, like I think that um, hotel choice can really matter. Um, you know, we made a, we made a move uh, when we were working together at Clemson to be very intentional about getting folks into this hotel that's right on campus. So folks can actually access campus and walk around if they want. They can see downtown and it gives people a better sense of, it's a better experience, but it's also gives them a better sense of what it's like to actually um, actually live there as opposed to sticking them at like, oh, well, it'll just be convenient to put them out here in this place that it's like, well, that's a, you know, that's a fine hotel, but it's not actually integrated into what we're thinking about in terms of teaching, you know, like helping them learn about the place. Um, there's also this really cool video here at JMU that the College of Arts and Letters put together that's about um, that's about living in community um, and what the Harrisonburg community actually looks like. And it really highlights specifically, um, it really highlights specifically the diversity of this community, which most people would not think about or consider. Um, so I think that's another part, but then I think, you know, most people got into this work because of students. And we talked about this last time too, but like having students involved in the process is going to humanize this because students just like inherently are not as, you know, they're not as trained. They're not as scary. They're not like, <laughs> you know, like people just very rarely walk away from like, oh, I had this conversation with a student and it was, you know, and it was, uh, you know, like intimidating. It inherently makes the process warmer and more whole. Um, yeah. And it, and it gives better information about like, what this place is actually about um, and teaches you a lot about what the culture actually is by getting to know the students there. So those are some, those are some things that I think about. What about, what about you? Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I'm having some thoughts about some of the things that you said and just, um, you know, I guess my first thought is if we say something is going to be non-evaluative, then we need to like make sure that it really is, right? I think about that space you've described of like the essay pros and um, making sure that then that truly is separate from like your evaluation process. And I think sometimes that's difficult to do um, because people interact and they want to give you their feedback. So I think just a, maybe a word of caution to think through what that looks like. It sounds like you all have figured it out or done it well at JMU if people are going to adapt that or adopt that practice, maybe thinking through how to make sure that it truly is non-evaluative of the candidate. Um, I could not agree more with you about the hotel choice. I think that, um, and I think I think about that a lot in Clemson, South Carolina, because be honest, it's not always the easiest place to recruit people to. Um, and so thinking about, you know, what, how you really, um, put a positive light on aspects of your community. And I think maybe my my tip there would be, as you think about hotel choice, yes, do not pick what is just most convenient because that's not doing a service at all to the candidate getting more information. Um, I think you can actually take that a step further and really try to anticipate some candidate concerns maybe or some questions candidates might have. So I'll give you an example that um, this was not in our department, but a search that I was a part of in another department where we um, we knew from both the candidates that we were bringing on campus that they intended to live in like the nearest city if they were to take the role. They were going to live in Greenville, South Carolina, which is where a lot of faculty and staff live um, and commute to Clemson. And so they like wanted more information about that community. So like it made more sense for us to put them in a hotel there so they could see it to like understand what like the Greenville life was going to be like, because then they also got to feel like here's what a commute feels like in the morning. Like we're going to pick you up and bring you down to campus. 
Um, and I think it gave them like way more information than had they stayed on campus and had to sort of hypothesize about what it would be like to live somewhere else and to work on campus. Um, and so I think, you know, can you anticipate some of those things for candidates and make intentional choices around lodging and um, other like informal aspects of their uh, visit to campus? Um, I think you can also do that with like how you think about their travel. Um, so, you know, for us, the, you know, and I would assume for a lot of campuses, if folks are flying into a major airport, um, there may be multiple routes you could take to your campus from that airport. So thinking about how you point out things, you know, for us, like driving from the Greenville Spartanburg International Airport to Clemson is like there's a pretty direct route on 85, but there's about a five minute detour you can take and go off and be able to show off downtown Greenville and show like sort of where that is. And um, yeah, it takes maybe 10 or 15 more minutes in your travel um, but I think worth it to be able to showcase some things. So think about those things as well. Um, and then I would say on your campus, um, think about some, like what, you know, a camp, like particularly the campus tour part of, um, an experience looks like. Um, I think one thing that we have been trying to do uh, more regularly is to offer some non-traditional campus tours, right? So some of our staff, like they don't need to know every single academic building on campus. They need to know like the thing, areas where we program, right? Like those things are important. That might be more of a traditional campus tour. Um, but we also have um, a faculty member here who I'm confident I have probably talked about on the podcast previously, Dr. Rhonda Thomas, who's done a ton of work um, with a project called Call My Name Clemson. Um, and she has tours um, that that tell like a more robust and more accurate history of, of Clemson and showcase sort of um, some of the things that often I think we try to hide, honestly, um, when we bring a candidate. And I think we need to be doing the opposite. We need to be giving people full information, but also showcasing the fact that like our campus is working towards something. Um, and so I think trying to to consider who you might be able to tap um, those those tours aren't just like always readily available, but that's something that we can you know request for candidates. And I think it, it again, it's it helps to showcase who we are and our values by the way that we structure some of those things. Hey, that was a great list. That was very good. Hey, thanks. You have a resource you want to share as we finish up? Yeah, but it's not about this. I just listen. People should read the books by they're just fiction <laughs> by Susanna Clark. She's amazing. Uh, I don't have anything to add. Just uh, Jonathan Stranger, Mr. Norrell and uh, Piranesi. Listen, these books are great. I just <laughs> it's not about hiring, but I just people want people want a tip. Jonathan Stranger, Mr. Norrell is very long, but it's wonderful. Piranesi is very this. short. Everybody can read Piranesi. It's amazing. Cannot recommend it more highly. <laughs> Do you think I would like it in an audiobook? Because you know I'm all about the audiobook life on my drives. Yeah, you should listen to Piranesi on an audiobook. It's okay, good. it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Keep you updated on that. Um I understood the assignment. I'm just kidding. Um, and came with a, a resource to share related to our topic. Although I kind of like this idea of us just sharing things that we want people to know about in the world. But um, mine's not really like a, necessarily a specific, like go here and look at this article. My resource to share is something that I think most of us have in our communities, and that is our Chamber of Commerce. And as you think about that last question that we posed of how do you showcase your campus and community, um, as someone who works in the community engagement space, I think that I have like a leg up in, in doing that when I bring candidates of like being able to talk about some of the history of our of the city of Clemson, because I do that as part of my work. But I don't know that all of us 
um, always have all that like information on the ready. And so, but I can tell you that your chamber of commerce does, and they have probably great information about, you know, what it's like to live and work in your community. And so I think just not forgetting that you don't exist. We always talk about existing in a bubble on college campuses and trying to, you know, hopefully burst that bubble a little bit. So, um, you know, don't treat the interview experience as operating totally in a bubble either. Think about how you want to include showcasing your community. And I think your chamber of commerce can be a good place to start. So, so with that, I think that, um, we're going to wrap up. So thank you to everyone for joining us for to practice presented by SAXA. Um, you can get more information about SAXA, the Southern Association for College Student Affairs, on the various social media outlets, including Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash SAXA fan page, on Twitter at at SAXA tweets, on Instagram at SAXA grams. We'd also highly recommend, I know Miles always says that it is, you know, very non-obtrusive, non-invasive, our uh, SAXA alert, which is great information on the work of SAXA and its members. Um, and with that, we thank you for listening and hope you have a great day.